Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm not joined today by my usual co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Uh, Cash will be back with me on Friday, but today I have a guest lined up, and I really wanted to talk about the very young, very large, very strange Orlando Magic, uh, and more broadly about what they maybe represent in the NBA landscape and a trend almost boomeranging back towards prioritizing size. So to talk to me about that, uh, I wanted to welcome on the person who wrote basically the seminal piece about this very subject just a couple of weeks ago. uh, And also one of my favorite writers covering the NBA today, a fellow Torontonian, though he now calls Brooklyn home. From CBS Sports, it's James Herbert. James, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the nice intro. And I will try valiantly to fill Joey Cash's shoes. <laughs> Those are very small shoes to fill. So I have no doubt that you'll be up to the task. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to get into this piece that you wrote, which is called From Small Ball to Tall Ball. There's an ellipsis there for emphasis. Uh, the NBA is resizing again. And you had a pretty strong focus on the magic in that piece. And they, they are just, I think, one of the most fascinating teams in the league right now. And I'm really glad you wrote the piece for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's really good and very illuminating. Um, and two, it hits on something that I've long believed, which is that small ball is a bit of a misnomer in that I don't, think that playing small has ever necessarily been the goal. Like the point was always just to put as much skill on the floor at one time as possible. And, you know, more speed, more shooting, more ball handling, more playmaking, more defensive versatility. And that did lead to a lot of teams downsizing because it's true that those skills tend to be exemplified in smaller players more so than in bigger ones. Bigger players tend to be a little bit slower and less defensively versatile and worse at shooting and ball handling and passing. But I think, I mean, if I had to kind of summarize your piece with like a pithy thesis statement, it would be that the bigger players are maybe closing the gap now in those skill areas. And that's allowing teams like the Magic uh, and some other teams that we can get into to put a lot more size on the floor and get the benefits of that with maybe fewer of the drawbacks. So I guess my first question to you is what prompted you to want to write this piece? Like what was the, the inspiration? Was there a moment, you know, like a a light bulb went on in your head and you were like, I need to, I need to get this out there. I mean, I've been thinking about the way the league has been changing just like all the time. (laughs) Like even last year, just watching some of the better teams in the league, like the Celtics played two bigs um, in the starting lineup and they were the best team in the league for a lot of the season and got to the finals. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. I I referenced in the story that last year in training camp, Ime Udoka was coaching the Celtics at the time, talked about how it was controversial for them to have Horford and Rob Williams in the starting lineup, but how he thought it could work. Like this was not necessarily the, like the choice of every Celtics fan on the internet, because, you know, 
a couple of years prior, Al Horford had started next to Joel Embiid uh, and Ben Simmons was on that team. And it was this like huge clunky, like awesome defense, but like just a mess on offense. Everybody was getting in each other's way. People were, you know, you'd have two guys trying to post up and opposite blocks at the same time. It was just kind of ugly. And even on that team, like you can go look at the splits, like the fewer bigs that were on the court, the better the offense was. Um, But Boston uh, ends up having the best defense in the NBA by a mile. And oh, by the way, in the second half of the year, that offense was killing it too. And it was killing it because they were using those big guys to their strengths. Like Al Horford often was playing like a wing out there when Williams was on the court and Williams was helping the spacing because of what he was doing as a role man. And because they didn't put him in any sort of positions where he was going to compromise it. So I I was kind of thinking about um, the idea of sort of bigger lineups, both having two bigs like that and making it work. And also, you know, with that team specifically, they just, I mean, they changed in the middle of the year. So they no longer had any defensive liabilities if they didn't want that and everybody could switch. And that, that again, that almost led them to a title and like Marcus Mark can guard all five positions, a huge dude. Um, you're, you're looking around the league, look at what the Raptors have been doing for a few years now. Um, but what was taken to a new extreme last year and they've ratcheted up again this year. And I just think teams are realizing that they can do crazy stuff defensively if they have size and those bigs are not Roy Hibberts. Like if you have mobile big guys with the length um, that can cover up for a lot of stuff uh, on that end. And then if you have creative coaches who can figure out how to make it work offensively, then all of a sudden you're looking at a team that doesn't have any like obvious weaknesses. And that, that just seems like the best of both worlds, like coaches and front offices seem to be, I mean, it's been years um, that this has been the case. Everybody wants these six, eight, six, nine switchable guys that can c- kind of do a little bit of everything that can dribble, pass and shoot. And that's something we've all been sort of talking about on the on the Internet for a long time. And I think it's just we're now getting to the point where some teams can find guys that are even bigger than that that can do those things. You were talking about six, ten, six, eleven, seven footers who can play brand of almost positionless basketball and sometimes operate like point guards and sometimes operate like more traditional bigs. Hmm. And oftentimes like they're comfortable guarding on the perimeter or coaches are putting in zones and all of this stuff. And I I think when I'm literally watching like the first game of the regular season and I'm watching the, um, the magic, I think their first possession was a zone. And then a few minutes into the game, they, bring out this absolutely insane jumbo lineup that I, I reference in the story where like bull bull is basically that the shooting guard or the small forward and like Franz Wagner's playing point. And I'm just like, what the hell am I looking at? Like, it looks like the Raptors, but bigger. Um, and that's why I wanted them to be kind of the team that I like started and ended the piece with, because they, when they go big, they go like so crazy big and it just looks so weird. But everything they're doing is kind of an extension of what we've seen from a lot of teams and what we've seen from certain NBA trends. Like they they still play five out offensively, even when they have like three or four seven footers on the court. And they they are basically interchangeable defensively, which we've been talking about since like the Warriors um, 
a few years ago um, when when Steve Kerr got there and Ron Adams was in charge of the defense and they're they're switching all this stuff and Draymond becomes Draymond and that kind of revolutionizes defense in the NBA. So um, if you can do that with like five dudes who are all enormous, then that's just like a, a scarier sight. Yeah, so I guess my next question would be, can they do it? Because obviously we don't want to make too many judgments at this point in time. And I think there have been enough glimpses of it working in really interesting ways that I don't want to foreclose on any possibilities. But the Magic are also, you know, all the stuff that I mentioned off the top, like the reason that teams were downsizing and the type of skill they wanted to put on the floor and bigs maybe starting to close that gap. Those limitations are still limitations that exist for a lot yeah. of the teams that are playing this way. Orlando, Toronto, like those are teams that have some playmaking and shot making deficits. And with Orlando, even defensively, you you know you talked to Jamal Mosley for that piece, and he talked about shrinking the court and having a bunch of giant players with giant wingspans who could make the court look smaller for an opposing offense. But I would think, or you would hope if you were the Magic or a Magic fan, that making the court look smaller would lead to like a, a better shot profile than their defense yeah. currently has. Like They have one of the worst defensive shot profiles in the league. They allow a lot of shots at the rim and a ton of threes. And their offense is obviously still very much a work in progress with, like, Wagner's done a very good job, especially for somebody his size, of being able to pilot that offense in spots. And obviously... Boncaro is like a super exciting yes. point forward power playmaking point wing. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Whatever you want to call him. So there are ways that that could get better. But I guess I'm wondering from what you've seen, does this feel like something that can organically grow and build into a trend setting type of team? Or are there inherent limitations here that they're going to run into and have to change the the dynamic of their roster? I don't, I don't know about inherent, but I think like right now, like, yeah, I mean, it's a bad team. Yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I had, yeah. um, I talked to Stan Van Gundy for the story and he was, it was kind of funny the way he talked about the magic. Like, I don't think I included this quote, but he basically said they desperately need more playmaking and ball handling. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the kind of stuff you would get from a traditional guard. And a lot of that is like what we're seeing from them is partially based on, their roster construction, but a lot of it is based on injury. Cole Anthony's been out a while. Mark Fultz has not played this season. Gary Harris, not a point guard, but he's a normal sized guard. Uh, he has not played this season. Um, so the games where Franz Wagner has like started a point guard, I, that was when Jalen Suggs was out too. Like they didn't really have a choice. And this was basically, I mean, what you sort of alluded to earlier is it wasn't some great innovation or if it was it was innovation out of necessity it was like Mosley wanted to get his best players on the court now I still think it's interesting uh in the past I think you might have seen a team just sign somebody off of the scrap heap to just make a spot start at point guard because they couldn't imagine just not having a traditional point guard on the court that that doesn't seem to be the way teams are thinking anymore but as presently constructed i mean you watch the magic every night they're losing most of them i was watching their game last night against the hornets and there's some moments where you're like oh my god this is really cool like bull bull putting it on the floor and 
doing like a jump pass to Mo Bamba at the rim for an easy bucket. You're just like, what is this? What is happening? Uh, There's a point where Franz Wagner had three possessions in the span of like two minutes, maybe where he like sliced through the whole defense and did a Euro step and finished. And it's just, I mean, he's been one of my favorite players to watch this year. That that doesn't mean that he's ready to be a, a just normal point guard on a winning team yet. It means he made a huge leap from year one. It means I think some of his teammates even uh, are see, looking at him as a different type of player than they thought he was when he got there. Uh, I talked to Terrence Ross a little bit about that when I was reporting this story. Like he just kind of had no idea that Franz had all of this in him and how, how could he honestly? Um, and I think the reason why you have Wagner and Bancaro is because they're awesome playmakers. Yeah, they're 6'10", but what they do is they make good decisions. They can dribble, pass, and shoot. And Paolo looks like he can be a superstar scorer. Franz looks like he could be, I mean, I don't want to put a ceiling on him either. Maybe he'll be a star, but at worst, he's like an awesome secondary playmaker, really good defender who can do just a little bit of everything that, that every team would like to have. I think ideally they would like Jalen Suggs to turn into an incredible starting point guard for them. If not him, then then Cole Anthony. If not right. either of them, then they'll get a Markel Fultz that can improve his jumper a little bit more and do all the other things that we've already seen him being good at. But they just haven't had the luxury of having a lot of guards um, to put on the court this year. So I, I think what the Magic represent to me in this form is more interesting than like what they're actually doing right now. And I think what they represent, I think as the way I put it in the piece was like, they give you a small glimpse of what, what the future could look like because their lineups feel very futuristic. Mosley kind of has empowered everybody to be a playmaker. Um, no matter what position people want to label them, no matter how tall they are, no matter how long they are, like he, he's empowered guys to play with freedom and everybody has a green light to shoot threes. Everybody has a green light to put the ball on the floor that hasn't added up to a good offense. Hasn't even added up to a good defense this year. But I mean, even going back to the way they played last year where it wasn't this extreme, like just the fact that they had Wagner and Carter and Bamba in the front court together, that was huge. And that was pretty good defensively. So I, I think it's, it's one of these things where, they are trying to get their best players on the court and because of injuries and the the kind of unconventional roster, like some teams wouldn't have brought back Mobamba last summer because they have all these other bigs. They said, screw it, bring them back play them all together, whatever. There's no other way to do it than to play a bunch of bigs together. Yeah. I really think that bowl epitomizes that futuristic idea more than any player on the team because. Oh Yeah. He's seven foot two with I think a seven eight wingspan, mm-hmm. and you mentioned him basically being the shooting guard in some of their lineups, and that might sound like hyperbole to some people, but if you watch the way that they actually use him, at least on offense, it's really not like they don't. He yeah. doesn't play like a big in any capacity. Like he's not screening in the pick and roll. He's not posting up. He's not hanging out in the dunker spot. They're like running him off of. Iverson cuts and pin downs and having him spot up and shoot off of movement. And like, they want him putting the ball on the floor and attacking the basket. Like he's not starting possessions close to the basket. They want him to get himself there essentially as if he were a guard. And it's super fascinating a, because he's actually doing it. 
I mean, I'm he's like maybe my favorite player of the league right now. It's unbelievable. Yeah, um, he's been awesome, man. And I think the yeah. cool thing about it is like, like you have seen like what the way you just described Bull Bull, the way they use him on offense. It's not that different from how you talk about like a Kevin Durant, <laughs> um, yeah. who also, by the way, like on defense for the last few years has basically been the, like a weak side rim protector. Like he plays like a big on that end most of the time, but on offense, he's like a point guard, shooting guard, whatever, for the most part. But that I think until pretty recently was generally the domain of superstar players like a Kevin Durant. Now, like around the league, you're seeing lots of taller guys, longer guys use this way um even like like poku on on thunder like he is he's like not a joke anymore by the way like if you watch him like he's like a pretty good complimentary role player um and just a like a terror as a weak side shot blocker starting the fast break for them doing all that kind of stuff he still does like makes a couple of kind Mm -hmm. of weird mistakes every game but like aside from those plays he's been pretty solid but what i'm getting at is like offensively he's sort of like just like a connector and a role player, he's not setting a ton of screens because he's like super thin and screens don't really do a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, he's like a secondary playmaker, a guy who is like extending an advantage that Shea or Giddy has created or whatever. Um, and then defensively, I mean, dude, the guy like guarding Brooke Lopez and being a help defender and like competing against guys that are way stronger than him, being more like a traditional big dude and like the the bowl role is like pretty similar like you you don't have to be a superstar anymore for a coaching staff to allow you to do something that looks sort of outside the bounds of a an archetype that we're familiar with right i i think at this point and and i would honestly give the raptors a, a lot of credit for for this sort of thing where they're just like positions don't matter we don't care and we're going to let guys exist where where they're comfortable like chris boucher is another dude i mean the the only thing he really does like a big man on offense is crash the boards otherwise he's a three and d wing basically um and there there are guys like this across the league like that like what used to be like weird and unconventional and don't get me wrong like bull bull is super weird and super unconventional um but like that it's getting a little less rare. You're you're starting to see weirdos getting a chance in diff- different ways around the league. Yeah, and I think a lot of this gets at something that I heard Mike Prada say recently, which is that it's not that positions don't matter anymore. It's just that they're not dictated by size. Like their positions are dictated by skill way more than they're dictated by size. And also Positions are fluid and a player might be playing one position on one possession and a different position on the next one. And it's like totally dependent on what's going on around them and how the possession is taking shape and whether they have the ball in their hands or not. And I think that's the big thing that we're seeing change is just like more positional fluidity. So part of what's interesting to me about all this is, and, and this gets at like a lot of the different teams that you mentioned in the piece, some of them are like the Grizzlies or the Cavs where they're playing two seven footers together in the front court. Yeah. And people will look at that and that will be a team that quote unquote plays big. And that's like very different than what say the magic are doing where it's just size completely across the positional spectrum. Cause mm-hmm. like you look at the Cavs backcourt and it's tiny, like it's two super small guys and, and yeah. same thing with Memphis. Right. And I, you know, I, I was thinking about this actually with the, with the Wolves and trying to figure out why it is that things really haven't clicked there. 
And to me, a big part of the problem, and, and this dovetails perfectly with what you were saying about that Sixers team that didn't work. It wasn't necessarily that the bigs couldn't play together. They just didn't have like the guard play or just the shot creation and playmaking to tie it all together. Like if you compare what's going on in like the Cavs and Grizzlies backcourts now to what's going on in Minnesota's where uh, Anthony Edwards still doesn't have the playmaking and D'Angelo Russell is not putting pressure on the defense as a scorer. And that just makes it so much more difficult for two big men to coexist. Like I think that sort of dynamic off the dribble scoring and playmaking element is still, is still so important to making these types of bigger lineups or bigger front courts work. And I think that's a, that's a huge part of why it didn't work in Philly. You know, like if they had a different kind of guard running the show than Ben Simmons, uh, I think it could have worked with Al Horford and Joel Embiid in the front court, just like it, it worked in Boston with Horford and Rob Williams together because they had, you know, the necessary shot creation, I guess, until the finals. I think every team is a different ecosystem and we've seen teams, you know, you can space the floor in different ways. And, and one thing, like if you watch the, the way the Warriors have played forever, they've always used small ball as a, as a counterpunch. But when they had, you know, their, their starting lineups over the years, like it's often like a, a Bogut and Draymond Green or a Zaza Pachulia and, and Draymond Green or JaVale McGee and Draymond Green, whatever it is like the, like Looney and Draymond now, you watch them play and Looney is moving around the court. Oftentimes he'll like, you know, you've seen that play a zillion times where he has the ball at the three point line, passes it and then goes and screens clay open or screens Steph open. And they just, they, they have an offense that is constantly confusing the defense with movement and screen setting. And it's all, like sort of choreographed, but sort of improvised because these guys know exactly how to play together. And Philly never found anything resembling that. And I actually think like, you know, if you go back and look at that team, like I thought like Ben Simmons could do that, but I don't really think Embiid wanted to play that way. I think Horford is capable of, of playing in a sort of more continuity based offense. He did it for years, but that, it was hard to get everybody on the same page and and doing that. Even like, you know, that, that year, I believe that was, they also lost JJ Redick and they got Josh Richardson Mm. in there. I think that would have looked better with Redick in Richardson's place on that team. And he's not this like dynamic, like on the ball point guard, but he creates so much space just with his movement and activity. And he had really great chemistry with, with Simmons and with Embiid. And I'm sure he would have with Horford, but it didn't, work with the five guys that they happen to have and it looked clunky and i think in minnesota it's kind of the same thing like yeah it's partially on the guys you mentioned i think part of it is like i love Jaden mcdaniels i love kyle anderson i don't think either of those guys is best as a small forward next to towns and then and gobert um Mm. it just it's it's a weird fit they don't have a ton of gravity on the perimeter, the way they play doesn't make more. I mean, you've seen they've started using Slomo as a point guard now, the second unit a little bit because that at least like makes it a little bit more balanced and makes him make more sense. But if you put like I don't know, like you put like Joe Ingles from like three years ago on that team in the small forward spot, it just looks better, right? <clears throat> but even still, like they've tried using Gobert 
in more creative ways and like putting him on the move, having him make more decisions. And he's just flat out not used to that. And I don't know if that's something that's going to improve over the course of the season, but I thought Finch had the right idea. Uh, we'll just see. It is it has looked pretty rough offensively so far, though. And because there's all these different variables that we're talking about, like D'Lo has not been that good. Uh, Ant has been like his decision making has not has not been great. He has not made the leap everybody thought. I think he's been kind of discouraged by what what he sees as like just kind of unworkable spacing that they've had. And then like Gobert just flat out isn't used to this. And Jaden and Kyle Anderson are like absolutely trying. But it's just, it's just a little awkward. And yeah. so I think there's going to be a lot of calls for them to blow this thing up, and, you know, trade Cat, trade D'Lo, like trade, <laughs> try to move Gobert, like whatever it is. Um, and I just I I think what the front office will try to do is make some smaller tweaks to try to um, see what they can do to make this more workable, because I think they saw a higher ceiling when they made the trade and like. In theory, that's still there, but they they have not found any kind of you know combination that has made these bigs pop so far. If if Darius Garland was the point guard there instead of D'Angelo Russell, sure. I think yeah. the team would be. I think the team would be awesome. I really think it's maybe it's not quite that simple, but I feel like that is so much of it. Where like right now, if Russell is running a pick and roll with Gobert, you barely get the benefit of Gobert's role gravity because like role gravity can work in a bunch of different ways where like you want to pull in some weak side taggers and that's going to open up skip passes to the perimeter or it's just going to drag the big man down with him in a deep drop because you're so worried about the lob that you'd rather play that than the ball handler and Russell's just like complete inability to take advantage of that space I feel like it's crippling their offense in a way that just wouldn't be an issue if you had somebody with a more threatening pull-up jumper and just a better in-between scoring package uh and like russell's not terrible at that but he's really struggled with that to start this season and honestly that's an even bigger problem with edwards who has always struggled in the in-between zone and last i checked was shooting under 30 percent this year on two pointers outside the restricted area. So if he is facing a deep drop, he really doesn't have a way to punish it. And even if Edwards is, you know, drawing the screen defender up to the level, uh, he, he doesn't have the playmaking juice to punish that either. So like the, the playing with Gobert as a role man is like, if an, an opposing team puts two on the ball, Gobert's not a great four-on-three playmaker. So what you really want to hit is the skip, where like the weak side tag is coming, and you're just skipping the four-on-three connective pass to the corner. And if you're the guard, you're just making it yourself. So yeah. you kind of like are able to bypass the middleman. And Utah's offense got really, really good at doing that. Like especially like Conley got so good at doing that. Mitchell did too, and that was what made their offense so so good in those last couple of years there before they blew it up and. I just feel like you're not. Remember, really remember when Conley got there though? Because when Conley got there, he'd yeah. been used to playing with Marcus All, and for the first like month and a half, everybody was like, "This is a disaster." Like, you give it time. Conley was hurt for some of that too, and like smart players will figure it out. Mm -hmm. And like they did, they had the pieces though. I don't know if Minnesota quite has all the pieces to do it. I do think like I have never been like the biggest D'Angelo Russell guy, but the best version of D'Angelo Russell is one that feels like 
fully empowered, that feels like really confident in his own game and his own scoring ability and is decisive. And right. he's been like kind of indecisive. Like when he was in Brooklyn and he had that all-star year, there was just, there were a lot of pull-up jumpers. There were pull-up jumpers, um, three-pointers. You just launch immediately if, if he had space. And he loved getting to his little pull-up twos and his mid-range shots, even though Kenny Atkinson hated that shot and nobody else was allowed to take it. He like, Kenny had to sort of compromise because he knew that's what D'Lo was comfortable with. And I think in Minnesota, because he's not the guy by any stretch, uh, he might be like the third guy, I guess, in the starting lineup. I think he is a little bit unclear on like what constitutes a good shot and like what the team needs from him. Mm -hmm. And it has just been kind of uncomfortable. Like he has not found his rhythm. And you can look at Mike Conley and say that it's possible that he can get there. But I also think that Jazz team just was so much better equipped in terms of all the spacing that they had in terms of just how the pieces fit to make that work on offense than, than this Wolves team is at this moment. Now the roster can change, but yeah. as of right now, I think it's a harder sort of mountain for, for D'Lo to climb than the one that Conley did. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. In your piece, you, you mentioned the magic team like the Stan Van Gundy magic teams in like the late 2000s that I mean I think that those teams have never really gotten their due in terms of how influential they were but that also really got at something that I think is missed in a lot of the conversations about what small ball I guess as we came to understand it actually is or was because to me like small ball was always like way less about what was happening with the fives than what was happening with the fours. Obviously there was like Draymond at the five and like, I guess PJ Tucker at the five. And those were, those were outliers. Like if you look around the league, even at like the height of what might be termed the small ball craze, like the vast majority of centers around the league, I feel like still looked at least physically like centers. Whereas the power forward position completely transformed in a, pretty short amount of time from being, you know, the domain of small bigs to being the domain of like bigger wings. Mm -hmm. And that may not have been like a huge distinction in terms of size. Like you mentioned, I think they basically went from starting a 6'11 guy at the four to starting a 6'10 guy at the four. Yeah. But it was a huge shift in terms of role. Yeah. That, that to me is what really changed where wing fours became like the dominant kind of power forwards around the league where teams wanted to have at least four guys on the floor who could space, uh, you know, who could shoot off a of movement and at high volume and maybe handle the ball in the, in a pinch and pass it. And when I look at what's becoming, I guess, like a bit of a, a counter revolutionary trend in terms of like the two big front courts that we're starting to see crop up, it feels a little bit like a marriage of like the wing four and the big four where 
Yes. Uh, you know, like an Evan Mobley or a Jaron Jackson, players who are like in terms of their size and some of their capabilities are are big men, um, but who can also like bring some of that wingy type of skill set. Yeah. No, I, I think what you're seeing is the just a, an evolution toward versatility at every single position, size mm-hmm. at every single position. And size is sometimes like functional size more than like actual just how tall you are. Like if you're strong, if you have a long wingspan that can make up for like if you're like the trend is that the smaller guards are disappearing. But the ones that are still there, they are the guys that can play a little bigger. Um, The the ones that are still there are the guys that happen to have longer wingspans that can switch a little bit more or they're just like Trey Young and they can dominate a game that way. But in terms of the, the fours and the fives, even like the guys who have these big glaring deficiencies on either end are having a harder time sticking and that like those guys are not immune from that. So I think when you're talking about the initial small, small ball wave, it's like, all right, like we're not seeing a lot more Zach Randolph's. We're not seeing a lot more Roy Hibbert's uh, either, but like the things that those guys were good at, like by all means, those are still really valuable. It's just like we want the guy to like turn into Zach Randolph in the post, but also be able to like guard on the perimeter. We want the guy to be able to shut down the paint like Roy Hibbert, but also move his feet a little bit. And hey, maybe this ages Hibbert can shoot threes um, I- instead of being limited to like, you know, the odd hook and put back and like little short jumper, you know, um, so that that is just kind of been a cool evolution and i think you know it's a continuation of stuff we we we've seen for a while like everybody's been talking about switchability and versatility like your fours that you were talking about like there were always some guys like i mean the van gundy's talked about this not not in the interview with me but in previous interviews he'd done like it's not like they hadn't seen it before like they watched the rockets with Olajuwon. like it's just instead of robert ori and matt bullard it's like now you have Richard Lewis who can space the floor. He can also like get a bucket and he can also like, he's a really good post-up player as well. And you see a lot more kind of Richard Lewis's now. I think you see a lot more Hito Turkoglu. I mean, magic fans are comparing Franz to Hito Turkoglu. Um, not just because they're both tall Europeans, but because like they, their games are like pretty similar. I think Franz yeah. is already better, but that's, just my <laughs> kind of opinion, but like he's doing Hopefully that, his prime that lasts stuff. a little bit longer. Mm, yeah uh but now it's like just in the same way that there aren't the randolphs and hibberts like you don't see a ton of like steve novaks around anymore Hmm. because once you get to playoff time you just you get targeted like crazy no matter what position you play and i think it makes sense given you know guys have grown up watching lebron now Giannis, um even before then like the kgs of the world like their bigs are not like tall kids are not growing up wanting to be Dikembe Mutombo. They're, they're growing up wanting to do absolutely everything. And coaches are not treating them the same way coaches treated them 10, 15, and especially 20 years ago. Uh, they are empowering them. They're getting like the sort of skill development that they didn't used to get. Every, you know, everybody used to like Kobe would talk about this. Pop would talk about this. Um, sometimes it sounded a little bit like, 
it was a little too extreme for my taste, but um, when people would just bash AAU basketball and like talk about how amazing like the coaching was in Europe, how guys mm. came over, they're so much more skilled. They're so much better. They can think the game and shoot the ball. And it like almost seemed a little racist, weirdly. But but like I I think the underlying kind of point there was that guys, no matter how tall they were, were growing up just learning to be basketball players. And learning to be decision makers, um, not like you're going to you're a big dude. So get your ass on the block and protect the paint for us. Like that is how basketball is being played all around the world now, because that is what they're seeing in the NBA. That is even what they're seeing, like in college basketball. And if I mean, people are watching, like if they're watching Overtime Elite or if they're watching the G League Ignite or like whatever the hell they're watching, like they're, this is what they're seeing. So it it just kind of makes sense that it's going to get more and more extreme, like Wembenyama is, I think, the logical extreme of this idea. Yeah. Um, but you don't have to look that far. Like Paolo is a really good example of this as well. Um, Chet Holmgren is an obvious example of this as well. And I just think year after year, these prospects that we used to say, oh, this is a unicorn. This is a freak. It's just like, nah, like this is just <laughs> this is what it is now. And the, as more and more of those guys get into the league, teams are going to just naturally kind of look a little bit different because coaches are going to have different kind of pieces to play with. Yeah. I mean, Wembenyama winding up on the magic, even though this feels like a newer trend, I feel like we might just already get to the logical endpoint if they wind up being able to draft him. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause you can say like all of these teams, like everybody wants to like put him on magic, the, the thunder because you put him with chet yeah. um and poku pe yeah people want to put him on the pelicans because they have the lakers pick and oh my god like i that would blow my mind um that's also another interesting team to talk about in this context just because yeah. at least when they're fully healthy i mean oftentimes like it might be a cj or a jose alvarado or Devonte graham a point guard but then everybody else is like got a seven foot wingspan on the court or there's yeah, Zion. Yeah. it was not I, there's no position for Zion like uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you was is there any team around the league that could be leaning into this tall ball trend that isn't really going far enough and the team that I had in mind was the Pelicans because I think Devonte Graham to me has just sort of like outworn his utility in New Orleans and I think could probably stand to be excised from the rotation uh, Alvarado's actually been amazing this year and obviously they need CJ out there for pretty big minutes, but like I, I would love to see Dyson Daniels get more burn and I would love to see some Me like too. JV Zion Ingram, Herb Jones, Dyson Daniels lineups where, you know, sure. like Zion's basically the shortest player on the floor and they're just leaning into their ability to be huge and skilled at every position. Like I, that's, that's the team that I would like to see kind of going a little bit further uh, and I think they yeah. would have, like they have the personnel to execute it really well. Yeah. So I followed up this piece that we were talking about on tall ball um, with a piece that came out yesterday on, on Jose Alvarado, who is a <laughs> six foot nothing dude who just competes like crazy, like does not is like completely fearless on both ends and is like the perfect example of the kind of player that can still survive um, if you are not that long and not that tall uh because he just doesn't he does not play that way and if you want to target him on defense it's kind of like all right like good luck same like you could play lowry and van vliet together uh because 
they were six foot, but they played like they were six nine. They they boxed dudes out. Like Alvarado boxes dudes out. Like this is this is a very very difficult job. Um, I I think I said in, in the story, at least in both stories, it's never been harder to be around six feet in a guard in the NBA than it is today. But there are guys that can do it, and I think you know the Pelicans are, are one of these teams that can play pretty much any style and any combination. They can play big, small, medium. They can be enormous or small in the backcourt and the front court. Um, and I, I think that has been a challenge because they have a lot of good players. The rotation has already shifted a couple of times this year. They've had guys in and out of the lineup. I think they have an extremely high ceiling. We have already seen them on certain nights. You watch them and they look like championship contenders. Other nights yeah. you watch them and it's kind of like, what, what exactly is, is the plan here? Um, and some of that is directly related to the lineups they have out there. I was listening to the low post yesterday and Zach Lowe said, he's just doesn't want to see Devonte Graham and CJ McCollum play together. And like, I have been saying that since the first time I saw Devonte Graham and CJ McCollum play together last year. Like I don't, they don't have to do it. So don't do it. And the other side of that is like, all right, well, what, how much do you want to lean into point Zion? How many minutes do you want to get Alvarado and McCollum out there together? Who like, it's a small lineup, but it also has been really, really good. And that's how they closed the game the other night in Houston that, that won them the game. Alvarado essentially won them the game. Yeah. And I think that takes a lot like that makes, McCollum's life easier but you also have the option to just stick like Herb Jones and Dyson Daniels and Trey Murphy out there and just be long as hell and be extremely disruptive and I just I think there's this like balancing act that Willie Green's gonna have to do all season in terms of how much do you want to lean into your size how much do you want to lean into your switchability how much do you want to prioritize getting shooting out there how much do you want to prioritize like keeping like your offensive rebounding out there because that has been so great for them for the last few years. And that was another thing I touched on in the story is like connected to this trend of more size is like coaches are looking at post-ups differently than they used to. And coaches are looking at offensive rebounding in, in different way than they used to. And those numbers are starting to creep back up after falling down year over year over year for the entire time that this trend towards small ball was happening. Yeah. I'm interested in that. Like, and I know that was, something that uh, Stan Van Gundy also said to you in that piece was that he saw the post-up kind of making this comeback. And like the post-up could come back as a way for these teams that are sort of zagging and starting to play bigger to take advantage of their size and punish teams that are still playing smaller. But then if that trend continues apace and the whole league just does eventually get bigger at like the wing positions, well, then suddenly the post-up maybe isn't that valuable anymore because you're <laughs> losing those size advantages at those positions that maybe you have right now. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that is a funny way to think about it because if everybody's huge eventually, then what is the sort of marginal gain to be had? I think it's a, it's a thing that can kind of change throughout a game like based on the lineups you had there. Like I'm kind of thinking about the Pelicans. Like mm -hmm. they in certain lineups they throw out there can kind of approach it the way the Raptors have for the last couple of years where, all right, like if you have five dudes on the court and four or five of them are comfortable posting up, then chances are 
there's going to be one of them that has a mismatch because you probably don't have five guys that are good at defending the post on the court at the same time because that has not been a priority in the NBA for a while. And just the way that size is distributed across the roster, like, yes, the NBA is getting bigger on aggregate, but that doesn't mean that every team has five dudes that are that size on at the same time. It means it's a higher likelihood that they have more of them. Um, so I, I think that's one of the things that was really smart about what the Raptors started doing, I think, more and more last year. And you've seen a little bit of it this year, too, uh, where it's like, all right, like if if Siakam and Ananobi and Barnes are out there at the same time, or like, you know, since the trade deadline last year, like if Thaddeus Young is out there, um, even Achua, like if if one of those guys has like a slight guard on him or a, even just a wing who might be six, seven, six, eight, but not strong, like take that dude down to the block. And you already talked about how like teams like Toronto and Orlando, they can sometimes have trouble in the half court, just in terms of playmaking, ball handling, shooting and all of that. Like, well, like all you're trying to do in a half court possession is get two guys to come to the ball and then somebody's open and then you play from there. And like, that is, that is kind of what Van Gundy was talking about in, in, in my story is like, that's a really easy way to get that happening is if you have that kind of advantage, you give it to a guy who can get a bucket in the post against a mismatch. And then you're golden. You, you can kind of approach the rest of possession from there. Guys can cut accordingly. Guys can spot up accordingly and, and you can make something happen in a way that like, especially if you are trying to play pick and roll basketball and they are just switching and they're switching well, and you can't get an advantage that way. Well, screw it. Like, that this is this is how you take advantage of that. And that's something that we've seen some teams do over the past few years. And I think we're basically going to see more and more teams kind of get equipped for that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it is also just like, I, I don't want to make it sound like we are back to the days of the 90s because the rules are different. Small guys flop. Small guys are able to get a lot of calls in that situation and defenses are more sophisticated than they used to be. You can say, all right, we're going to play against the Celtics who switch everything. And we're going to go into the post. Like, even though they're a huge team, like we can take Derek white down to the block. Like, well, can you, cause teams had trouble even taking Kemba Walker down to the block because the second that he was there, he would immediately be running towards someone else. And like either a Marcus smart or like whoever it was, was scramming him out of there. And teams are like really good at that now. So you have to get it into the post fast. You have to have like good entry passes, which is what a lot of like grumpy coaches complain about now is that no one knows how to throw an entry pass. Um, that's what Stan was shouting out the Suns for is that like when, De when Deandre Ayton gets a post up, like Chris Paul will get him the ball and he's looking to do that every time. And they're the best team. He like, it didn't end up in the piece, but he like went on this like whole thing about how he loved what the, what the Suns do with mismatches. And I just, I think not every team can do that. But if you are good at that, then you can make that like a part of your menu in a way that I think a lot of coaches weren't even trying to do that for years because it was like, well, the post up is inefficient. Well, not yeah. if your dude is super strong and he's being guarded by a small guy because the team has decided we're just going to like switch everything. You mentioned teams like the Raptors and Magic almost doing it by necessity just because they don't have that pick and roll element at least not to the same extent that a lot of teams around the league do so it's definitely a good fallback uh, and a good potential counter but I think from watching 
those types of teams try to run their offense through the post versus the teams that are just able to get to on the ball because they have dynamic guards. It still mm-hmm. feels so much more arduous to run the offense through the post. And I mean, that's, that's okay. If it works, it works. And, you know, if you are getting the benefits of being huge at the defensive end of the floor and you just have to find a way to make it work on offense, then that's totally fine. And I think that's, there are no perfect teams. Like every team is going to have a hole or two somewhere. And so that really is what it's all about is just leaning into your strengths, figuring out what those strengths are, like how you want to play and then finding the ways to, to patch over your weaknesses. And I think there's, this is maybe a straw man, but like my feeling is there's a misconception about what playing big actually opens you up to. Like, I think people think that it's really hard to defend when you play big in this day and age, just because of like the amount of shooting that other teams are putting on the floor. And because you're at like a speed disadvantage. So there's this idea of like, Oh, you're going to get run off the court. But if you look at the data, it's like the, like big lineups dominate defensively and where they really struggle is on offense. And yeah, I think that the, the idea of defensive versatility, like that's something that size provides you more than anything. Like I watched the magic play these gigantic lineups and they switch a ton. Like they'll switch bowl bowl mm. or Mo Bamba or Wendell Carter out onto the perimeter all the time. And they're able to do that because you know, they can trust that if that guy gets beat, that there's enough size uh, behind them to, to close space, to protect the rim, to rebound. Whereas like, if you want to be a a smaller team that switches everything like the Rockets were once upon a time, like you have to be so airtight on those switches and so good defending one-on-one because if you spring a leak anywhere, it's like, you don't have the rim protection. You, you don't have the rebounding. And like those Rockets teams, got destroyed on their own glass. And that was like a big part of what became their undoing. So being big helps you defend. And I feel like it's on offense where those sort of marginal gains that we're starting to see, like that's, that's, I guess what you would hope to see change in terms of like the skill quotient catching up among the big guys. Like those big teams need to be able to score. Yeah. I think there, there are certain big guys who have been played off the floor in the playoffs. There have been certain, I mean, even I've been at regular season games where I've seen a point guard just go at the same big dude over and over. And then it's like, all right, send that guy to the bench. Like that happens. Yeah. That doesn't mean that that is the problem. And that is why teams like for years were, were trending smaller. Like they, they were trending smaller because they wanted more skill on the court. They wanted more shooting on the court. They, they needed the spacing. And I mean, one of the reasons you need spacing is because you're, you're often going up against these teams now that are enormous and they all have their hands real high and they're playing more zone and you you need to make those guys move you need to be able to draw the bigs away from the basket and one of the reasons why you'd want to go big um and play you know and sometimes it's you know a team that like i i wanted to get in the piece i didn't have enough room for like the bucks like they will play these lineups with like portis and Giannis and lopez which like functionally is not super different from like what the Cavs did last year with Markinen and Mobley and Allen, the whole, like the entire basis for what the Cavs did. And it looks a little different this year though. When Dean Wade's out there, it's pretty much the same. Like the idea was you can switch a Jared Allen out on the perimeter, even though he is not like 
ideally who you would want guarding like a I don't like a Trey Young or whoever it is because um, he can get cooked. But like if he just competes and he funnels him the right way, then there will be an Evan Mobley behind him. And if they do, if they switch multiple times, like there's still a third guy who is there who can at least put his arms up super high, like whether it's Kevin Love or Markinen or Dean Wade or whoever it is. Um, I mean, Love is like always at the top of the league and charges per minute or whatever, because he's like a really good help side defender. He slides in, he gets there. And if he's not there to take a charge, he can at least make himself big, not a traditional rim protector by any means, but just like a big dude. And like, if, if you just have multiple guys who can defend the basket and make it harder for people to score in there, then your switching looks different. Like even, I mean, the nets have switched a lot for the entire, um, I mean, basically since the Atkinson era, like, like a couple of coaches ago, (laughs) um, an entire Jacques Vaughn interim coach ago, like, um, but it has looked radically different depending on who has been healthy, who has been out there, who has been available. And sometimes they have looked absolutely tiny and it has been kind of a disaster. Other times it has looked pretty all right because they are getting their opponent kind of out of rhythm. They're getting them disrupted. And if something is not quite ideal, maybe there's like a Kevin Durant on the backside that is there getting a block. Like the same way that like you would see LeBron protecting the rim um, dating back all the way to the heat days. But I mean, I, I'm thinking particularly of a couple of years ago where they played him at the three and 80 at the four for a ton more minutes than I ever thought they would. Yeah. And guess what that did? That made their half court offense like ugly, but it meant they won the championship based on their defense being insane. And the fact that after they'd get the stops, they'd push the ball and run, which, Oh, by the way, that was the bucks formula the next year. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, you don't think of the Warriors this way because they shoot all those threes. But like I'm thinking about the finals last year where, yeah, they end up taking Looney out of the starting lineup for Porter, whatever. Like Looney still played a huge role in that series. Their half court offense was nothing like it had been the entire year. Like it was bad. Why did they win? Their defense was insane. And then after they got stops, they ran and they shot threes and they made them and they just killed Boston in transition. And like, that's, that is a proven formula uh, over the past few years in the NBA, despite the fact we want to talk about how guys get played off the court. uh, There have been multiple teams who have dominated by winning the possession game and then just kind of feasting on like the, the margins here. And there are a lot of teams trying to do that. And one of the ways you can try to do that is by playing big. Yeah, I mean, like the Raptors are the Raptors and the Grizzlies. I think are like the two kind of Raptors are insane. This <laughs> year's Raptor is they're like the best transition team I've ever seen. And yeah. I thought last year the way they forced turnovers, the 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 level of aggression they had was like terrifying. Yeah. Um, but they have ratcheted up to a, a whole other level this year. It is it is wild. Yeah, so I know you wrote about this last year. I wrote about it early in the season with the Raptors, and it was one of the things coming into this year that I was very curious to see if they could repeat, which was like their insane possession differential. I think they were they finished plus seven last year in shooting possessions on average, which I like I went through the basketball reference database and there are just like very, very few teams that have ever done that before. And 
So I was like, man, can they really do this again? Like force that many turnovers, commit that few turnovers themselves, Mm -hmm. offensive rebound like this without really getting burned for it in transition. And it's like all of that stuff they're doing even better this year than they did it last year. I think last I checked, they were plus nine in shooting possessions. What even is that? (laughs) Like it's, and that's the thing. That's where you're talking about like, okay, lean into your strengths and just like patch up the limitations in whatever way you can. It's like, okay, well, we don't have a great half court offense. We don't have a ton of, you know, individual shot creation or, or shooting in general. But what we can do is we can really turn teams over and we can run like hell and we can crash the offensive glass and we'll just like take care of the ball ourselves and we'll wind up shooting nine more times per game than you will. And so despite the fact that like, as another thing I checked a couple days ago where like their true shooting percentage on offense was like 24th in the league, their true shooting percentage allowed on defense was like 26th in the league because the way they defend, like they give up a lot of rim shots and corner threes. Mm-hmm. So they had this, like their opponents were out shooting them like by a mile and they still had a plus five net rating just because of all the extra possessions that they were generating. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a really like, int- it's kind of a revolutionary way to look at Look at the game. And it's, it's, I mean, it isn't, and it isn't like the, the piece that you're referring to last year is when I kind of wrote about the, the new possession game, which is like, all right, the old possession game is this conservative stodgy kind of like, I'm thinking about like the, like, early Popovich Spurs where it was like, we're going to play this boring, fundamentally sound basketball. We don't make any mistakes. We play super slow. We play through the post and then we like grind you down defensively and we're huge. And like, it's very sort of like old school, like, like old school coaches love that shit. And like now the teams that are winning the possession game are, they have these like creative, like oftentimes younger coaches, um, doing some stuff that's like really forward thinking, but they're accomplishing the same thing. They're just they're getting extra possessions. They're oftentimes being really, really physical. They're oftentimes just playing super hard. So it's this like sort of melding of like things that coaches have always loved and wanted, but doing it in this like very, very like modern style that, that I found like super interesting. And yeah, the, this year's Raptors are just, I don't even understand how they're they're at this level, but it is it is it is awesome to watch. And the the on the offensive rebounding bit, like I had a quote from Mosley in, in the story that like when he said it, it kind of blew my mind because I'd never even I'd never thought of it this way. But his idea was, well, if you crash the glass, it puts pressure on the other team defensively. So they have to send more bodies to the boards so they can't get out for leakouts and easy buckets and transition. So for like, as long as I have known basketball, like as long as I've watched basketball and heard coaches talk about it, it's always been the trade-off between like, well, if we send guys to the boards, then we're not getting back in transition. But right. his idea was, well, if we send enough guys to the boards, then they're not going to be able to run in transition. So this trade-off, like, I don't believe in this trade-off. We're doing it a different way. And I'm just kind of like, like, wow, maybe that's how the Raptors did it last year. Because people were, I think, you know, like a few weeks into the season, people started to like look at the numbers and be like, wait, what is happening here? How are they this good at limiting transition opportunities and this good at getting to the offensive glass? And I maybe like you would heard somebody put it this way before or thought of it. I had never thought of it that way until I heard Mosley say it. I was like, all right, wow. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really interesting battleground and like it's a risk reward calculus that I you have to decide, I guess, 
whichever team you are, whether you're the team that's like trying to protect your own glass and also get out and transition or the one that's, you know, trying to find the balance between generating extra possessions, but not giving up easy ones on the break the other way. And it is a revolutionary concept, but like when I did the research uh, in writing that Raptors piece last year, I went through like the whole cleaning the glass database, which goes back to, I think the 2003 04 season. And I looked at all the teams that had finished first in offensive rebound rate and cross-reference that with those teams ranking in terms of transition frequency allowed. And I think the average yeah. ranking was like 18th. So it's yeah. it's never really been correlated with like suppressing transition in the past. I just, I do think it's really dependent on personnel and like the Raptors had like the perfect alchemy of like guys with a really great nose for the ball. Like they were able mm-hmm. to crash and actually make it pay off. But also they're just so fast and long, like they are able to recover. Like if they crash and they whiff, they can get back and they have the type of personnel that can cross match where anybody can pick up anybody. And I think it's funny because like if you look at their numbers this year, they're they're not nearly as good at preventing teams from getting out in transition, but their transition efficiency allowed as a defense is like seven points per hundred better than any other team. It's, I don't know, they're, they're, strange and wonderful and i just never really know what to make of them because they're so different from really any team that i've ever watched before but i think that's a great way to like cap this off because we can circle it back to the magic where i'm looking at all these things it's like okay they're they're playing with all this size but are they really getting the benefit of playing with all this size because they're getting murdered in in the possession game not yet not yet no uh like they're I mean, they've been pretty good on the glass, but like they force basically no turnovers. They -hmm. turn the ball over a ton themselves. They are like one of the lowest frequency transition teams in the league. And so it's like they're they're doing this in a much different way than some of the other teams that we've seen playing big and not necessarily getting all the benefits of that. And like that that possession differential, that's a big reason why I think they're struggling and, and not entirely making this experiment work Yeah, I mean, they're just like they're at this point partially because of injuries and necessity. That's at Mm -hmm. least why it's this extreme. So like when I say that you're getting glimpses of the future with them, it's like you're also getting glimpses of like the kind of stuff we're talking about. Like I'm like last night they have an inbounds play where just because the magic had a bunch of huge dudes out there. Terry Rozier was stuck guarding Franz Wagner like as his primary matchup. So like off that ATO Wagner just like goes underneath the basket. They inbound it directly to him and he scores. And that's the play. And like, that is something that is like fully just because of their weird configuration. So you do see them take advantage of that. Sometimes you will see some, like particularly when you're talking about bull bull, like just some stuff that he does in transition, some stuff that he does on the offensive glass. Um, that's like really impressive. And that shows you like on that possession, this is what is possible with this size. But all of that is not outweighing their like awful turnover rate um, because they're unorganized. Uh, they're disorganized, excuse me, on offense. And because their point guards have been either injured or not like super effective at, at getting everybody on the same page. And, you know, I, I think they have some personnel that is equipped to play the kind of way that we're talking about. But some of those guys are smaller. Like Jalen Suggs is a really good point of attack defender. He can 
put pressure on guys and force turnovers. Markel Fultz is the same way. Like those guys, I don't even know if they can really play together and Fultz hasn't played a second this year. So yeah. it's, it's very much a work in progress. Um, Cole Anthony offensively, I think fits in perfectly fine. He's also the kind of guy where it's not so much like a, an Alvarado Van Vliet Lowry type situation. It's more like, all right, well, like him being out there with all those big guys means like those guys help him survive <laughs> defensively because they can cover up some of his picks. He's, he's improved a little bit as a one-on-one defender since he came into the league. I should give him some credit, but he's not an, he's not an above average or even I would say like an average yeah. one-on-one defender. He's not a switchable guy or whatever, but like the idea essentially would be the reason why you could maybe switch Cole Anthony onto somebody is because that somebody is now looking at a bunch of arms <laughs> behind Cole Anthony that are ready to cut off any drive that, that he has. So I am kind of eager to see what they look like when they're more at full strength. They will probably get a little less weird, but they'll be better. Um, and then the, the other part of it is just like how much better does Franz get? How much better does Paolo get? How much better does Bull Bull get? This is the first time he's had consistent rotation minutes in the NBA. Like it seems like he's been around forever, but he's still quite young. He's still extremely inexperienced uh, in, in the big picture. And I, I think we are still kind of like only getting a, a little bit of an idea of the kind of player he can be. And it, it looks real right now. I hope it is actually like it proves to be real. I hope we're talking about him for most improved player in a few months. But I like we'll just we'll kind of have to see um, they they I mean, like we talked about at the beginning, like I I think they're absolutely fascinating. One of my favorite teams to watch, even though a lot of the time I'm watching, I'm just kind of like, oh, this is ugly. <laughs> It's ugly and it's beautiful at the same time because even yeah. though like their offense very often doesn't get anywhere, they actually really do like for a team that you would think would be clunky and weird, they are spaced they, out. They're, they, they're yeah. spaced. They move the ball like they don't yep. it doesn't get gummed up like there aren't a lot of guys who can just like create advantages. And so it's like even all like the movement and the cutting and passing just like still doesn't lead anywhere fruitful a lot of the time but they're trying they're they're doing all the right things and i find it i find it really fun to watch i'm i'm captivated by it in spite of the fact that it hasn't led to a ton of success so far and honestly reading your piece like it just illuminated a lot of this stuff for me in a way that made me appreciate it more so thank you for writing it and thank you so much for lending your time to this show and coming on today um i'll give you the floor if you want to plug anything before we sign off here but um just want to tell you how much i appreciate you coming on wow that's super kind of you uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and there's been there's been a lot of fun I, I the only thing i'd plug is the the jose alvarado story that i mentioned earlier um just went up yesterday on cbssports.com in the nba section and i will tell all of our listeners to follow james on i mean i guess for as long as it continues to exist on twitter at outside the nba <laughs> uh and read all his stuff at CBS Sports because it is always excellent. Um, definitely go read that piece about the tall ball revolution if you haven't already. Thank you for listening. Again, I'll be back on Friday with my usual co-host, Joseph Cacharo. For now, I'm going to put a bow on this. So for James Herbert, I am Joe Wolfon. Talk to you all soon. <laughs> <laughs>